So good morning, or good afternoon, as the case may be, uh, depending on when you are hitting the play button here on this, the 29th episode, I believe, to say that hesitantly again, uh, episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast, the world-renowned Cotton Companion Podcast. Uh, we welcome you and thank you for listening to us from wherever you may be tuning in from uh, in the U.S. Cotton Belt, from Statesboro to the Sacramento Valley and all points in between. Uh, we welcome you. We thank you. Today is Wednesday, July 19, and I am very happy to be uh, coming to you today from inside the comfortable, conditioned air of the Cotton Companion studio <laughs> here in uh, Cordova, Tennessee. It has been a scorcher of a past few days here in Memphis and the Mid-South at large. Uh, I guess you guys are are enjoying getting packing those heat units in while you can. I, that's something I always hear about later in the year. That's something I only started hearing about in the past few years, so I should probably sit down with a agronomist or somebody to really uh, inform my knowledge about what exactly a heat unit is all about. It seems you know fairly self-explanatory. Uh, anyhow... Uh, I am Beck Barnes. I'm the publisher and editor here at Cotton Grower Magazine, and I am here with our senior editor and my partner in crime, Mr. Jim Stebman. Hello, Jim. Good morning, Beck. How are you? And hello, everyone out there. And yes, I am sure the cotton is loving this heat right now, Consi- considering some of the cool rainy conditions they've had early season. That's fair. Yeah, I forget about that. We did have we had too much water. Uh, I know south of here in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, throughout this early spring so yeah it's it's hot out there good for the cotton not so great uh if you're beck barnes and just trying to mow your large yard (laughs) with your push mower and feeling like you're gonna fall out uh which is a true story from this past sunday anyhow uh as we speak we are in the heart of growing watering uh still a little a lot of weed control probably going on out there across much of the belt and um We are going to touch on those and other agronomic topics in today's episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. Jim here is going to be leading us uh, in his discussion of the latest news items uh, up to and including the following topics. We're going to talk crop crop conditions and crop progress. Uh, The most recent USDA crop progress report came out on July 16, which was Monday? Sunday. Sunday. Uh, and he will be taking a look at that thing. We're going to talk about the Pie Tour, which some of you may be familiar with. Mm. Pretty neat program that uh, the National Cotton Council puts on. I believe it's still sponsored by Bear Crop Science. It is indeed. That enable that sort of mixer, uh, if you will, of cotton producers to get to see other spots in the cotton belt. Jim will tell us more about that. And then we are going to, once again, for the third podcast in a row, uh, examine the plight of dicamba and dicamba regulation uh, here this season, particularly in the Mid-South, where it seems like a, uh, a new headline uh, comes almost every other day. Uh, we have, for the past two podcasts, as I, as I mentioned, we have talked about dicamba, a little inside baseball here. We record this thing, and then it goes into our sound production uh, process, and we it nor- normally goes live a day or two after we are actually speaking. So right now, uh, it'll be live on our website here in a day or two, probably by the end of the week. Well, the past two times we have done this podcast, the, from the time that we talked about it until the time that it went live, 
everything changed. <laughs> and so our, our info it's, was... It's been a rapidly moving story. Right. Our, our info, you know, was, uh, you know, it wasn't useless or totally uh, outdated or irrelevant, but there had just been new developments uh, by the time we went live. So we hope that this time uh, we will cover all of the bases and nothing crazy happens in between now and when you're able to listen to this uh, actual podcast. Finally, the uh, the the what should I say uh, entree, if you will, the uh, star of today's program is going to be uh, our guy uh, on Capitol Hill, Mr. Reese Langley, the National Cotton Council's man on Capitol Hill. Uh, Jim caught up with he, this guy. When did you speak with Reese? Talked to Reese during the Southern Cotton Jenner's summer meeting in Lafayette, Louisiana. It's been a week ago. So about a week ago, mm-hmm. and Jim kind of, you guys recapped a lot of what's mm-hmm. going on with uh, governance on Capitol Hill uh, with respect to, you know, agriculture. Obviously, we are still under a new administration, and we're still, you know, getting our bearings with um how to proceed with the new administration, we being the Cotton Council and, and Cotton's interests in Washington, D.C. Well, as you may have heard, so Jim spoke with Reese, uh, who is an expert on those topics, a week ago. And as you may have heard just yesterday, uh, the headlines hit that there was a Congress-wide effort. I believe I saw over 100 uh, Congress members signed this, essentially, petition uh, asking the president to uh, give some relief to the cotton industry. That effort was spearheaded by Rep. Mike Conaway from Texas, I believe, if I read the story That's correctly. Correct. And so anyhow, it kind of gave a, uh, a news peg to this interview that Jim had conducted with Reese uh, a little over a week ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was nice timing. Long story short, it was it dovetailed nicely with this interview that, that Jim had conducted. So we are going to bring it to you in this episode just kind of give you a gauge of what's going on in D.C. with this new administration and uh, with its uh, respect and dealings with the cotton industry. I don't want to put the cart before the horse here. We are going to take a brief break, and when we come back on the flip side, Jim will dive into the news items of the day. So bear with us, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Cotton Companion. Uh, as Beck said, we're going to go through a couple of news items here. Uh, spend a little time talking about uh, updating the dicamba issue. Uh, but first of all, let's start with, as usual, with the crop progress report, the latest one from USDA, and this would be the crop progress report as of Sunday, July 16th. At that point, uh, overall, uh, 70% of the U.S. cotton crop is now squaring. That's a 9% jump. Uh, since the uh, previous week, uh, the July 9th report, and is still slightly below the five-year average for this date. So basically everything is running on schedule. Uh, The biggest percentage gains in the past week came in Virginia, Missouri, Mississippi, South Carolina, Alabama, California, and Texas. And we have six states, Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Virginia, that are running ahead of their state's five-year average for squaring at this time. Uh, overall, 26% of the crop is setting bowls uh, across the belt. That's up 7% from the previous week. Also, just slightly below the five-year average for this date. Uh, the biggest percentage gains 
in a, in a long string of, uh, of states, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, Mississippi, South Carolina, Virginia, Louisiana, Arizona, Alabama, and Georgia, with nine states, Arizona, Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, running ahead of their five-year averages for this date. Crop condition, uh, slight improvement overall in the past week. Uh, right now, only 10% of the crop is rated poor, very poor. That's uh, It was at 12% a week ago, so we're starting to see a little movement over into the to the better categories. Uh, 30% is rated fair. That's up from 27% a week ago. And 60% of the crop is still rated good to excellent. So that's, uh, that's the latest at, at this point on, on the crop conditions. Uh, we're going to move ahead into, uh, into sort of the dicamba update. And as Beck said, as usual, immediately after we put our last podcast to bed, a lot more state-level activity occurred regarding rules and restrictions for dicamba use. It's not necessarily bad timing, just a lot of quick action in a very short period of time. Uh, so just to briefly recap and some of the things we were talking about in the last podcast, at that point there was a proposed emergency rule uh, in Arkansas that would ban the sale and use of dicamba in that state, except for forage and pasture, ap- pasture applications. Uh, that rule was, uh, was sent by the Arkansas State Plant Board to the governor and to the executive subcommittee of the Arkansas Legislative Council for action. It was approved on July 7th and went into effect July 11th. That is not only looking at a ban for sale and use of dicamba in the state, but also puts a matrix in place that would increase penalties for infractions up to $25,000. So there's some uh, some significant activity there. Uh, later that day, Missouri Department of Agriculture issued a stop sale, use, or removal order on all products containing dicamba for on-farm applications, and that included Extendamax, Ingenia, and Fexapan. In Arkansas, you're only dealing with Ingenia in terms of the new technologies. Uh, at that time, the state had received more than 130 drift complaints, uh, and the state director of agriculture basically said, we're going to take a pause here and, and see what we can do. We're going to work with the, uh, the manufacturers, in this case Monsanto, BASF, and DuPont, to look at options and conditions that would allow applications to resume. So a short ban in place, uh, but a lot of activity behind the scenes to try to get things moving again. That, that also was on July 7th. On July 12th, Tennessee Department of Agriculture filed some emergency rules for use of dicamba products that will remain in effect until October 1st. And basically what those rules and restrictions are, anyone applying dicamba products have to be cert- must be certified as a private applicator or licensed as a pest control operator for agricultural use. They are required to keep records of all applications. Any use of older formulations of dicamba are prohibited for the remainder of this growing season. So basically, if you're going to use dicamba in crop, it needs to be on products that are uh, only tolerant to dicamba and with the new technologies available. Dicamba applications can only be made between 9 a.m. in the morning up to 4 p.m. in the afternoons in your respective time zone. And applying dicamba over the top of cotton after first bloom is prohibited, although I saw a clarification this morning 
earlier today that hooded applications are probably are still okay after first bloom in Tennessee. So that was on July 12th. One day later, July 13th, Missouri lifted their ban on the new dicamba technologies uh, and approved some new Section 24 special local need labels for each of the three herbicides for application to dicamba tolerant soybeans and cotton with certain restrictions. And some of these are going to sound familiar. Uh, no applications at wind speeds greater than 10 miles per hour. Uh, applicators have to measure and record wind speed and wind direction for each field prior to application. Applications only between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And a lot of this is, is basically get the application applications done in time periods before a, a possible temperature inversion could occur. Um, all applications of Ingenia, Extendamax, and Fexapan have to be made by a licensed, properly licensed Missouri certified private applicator or certified commercial applicator. Uh, again, so following the, pretty much the same guidelines that we saw in Tennessee. Uh, these certified applicators have to complete an online web-based form, form titled Dicamba Notice of Application prior to the actual application and that form is posted on the Missouri Department of Agriculture website and all applicators must keep and maintain record of use for each application of these herbicides. So basically less than a week after after stopping the sale and use of dicamba products in Missouri, Missouri is now back on board with just some uh, some rules and regulations and, and a little bit of uh, special labels to, uh, to get growers back into uh, into the, the mix on this. Uh, on July 13th, Monsanto executives held a press briefing uh, praising the actions that Missouri and Tennessee had taken. Uh, obviously, they were defending the value of the technology, as you would expect. Uh, some of the following observations were made based on some of the uh, field visits that were, had been made by Monsanto personnel. Uh, and, and again, it's sort of you can, you can take this for, for whatever it's worth because there are obviously a number of, uh, of, of reasons and, and situations that, that have caused some of the, uh, the issues. Uh, some of their observations, uh, there were not adequate buffer separation differences. Sprays were being made in windy conditions. Uh, sprayer contamination could also be an issue. And, uh, and most disturbing, uh, Illegal use of older generic dicamba formulations uh, could represent up to 25% of the uh, of the problems. They also have a toll-free number uh, available if anyone has questions or concerns. That number is 844-RRXTEND. Round up ready, extend, and if just break that out, that's 844. 779-8363. Uh, what I found interesting was as of July 12th, there are several states, a number of states have had dicamba inquiries back to their state departments of agriculture or in Arkansas's case, the state plant board. And I, you find it interesting that Arkansas at this point, as of that date, had 633 inquiries. Missouri had 130, Tennessee had 76, Mississippi had 60. Then you move down to Kansas had 37, Illinois 20, 19 inquiries in Indiana, 12 in Iowa, 4 in Texas, 
three in South Dakota, two in Kentucky, and one each in Minnesota, Colorado, and Louisiana. Uh, that's not all cotton-producing states. Yeah. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a situation that has been noted in the dicamba tolerant crops as you move even into the Midwest. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's safe to say every state is looking at all of this at this point and keeping their eye out on uh, on possibilities. The to me the glaring omission in all this the states that aren't showing up is the southeast. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that looking over those, that list, but yeah, I've talked to a couple growers uh, who farm over on the Alabama Georgia line, and they they mentioned. They have had zero or heard of zero complaints right. from that from that area. Uh, just last week, I was actually talking to them. I'm actually will be doing a story on <clears throat> with some of their comments uh, in our August September issue. I wonder too, looking at those numbers there. You mentioned in Arkansas with the glaringly uh, large number there, uh, over 630. It says dicamba inquiries as of July 12, and no doubt, I'm certain the majority of those are about. Uh, a drift complaint or such. Absolutely. But I know that I was in the uh, uh, Bryan, Texas area a few weeks ago at a Monsanto event, and I was talking with uh, Lynn Angel, who was a, a weed agronomist with Monsanto. You know, they get, when there's a dicamba uh, incident or questions, they get calls too. Right. He said to that point, this was like June. When did I go to? <laughs> Jim, tell me, remember for end, me. It was the end of June. Yeah, yes. it was, yeah, it was. No, it totally was. It was like uh, the 29th or 30th, right. maybe. And uh, he told me that they had received four calls to that point about dicamba. He said two of them weren't about off-target movement that mm-hmm. was injuring someone else's crop or anything like that. He said two of them were just about the efficacy of the of the product. They, yeah, they had sprayed right. it and the weed hadn't died. And he was like, and, uh, they just didn't wait long enough for the for the uh, herbicide to work uh, in those instances. So I wonder if each of those, these calls, these big numbers that we see are all an instance of off-target drift that injured something, or if a few of them aren't just, you know, calls of actual inquiries about how the product's working or, you know, things of that nature. I think the safe answer is yes. It's (laughs) probably both. Yeah. Uh, You know, because any inquiry, anything that goes, went into the Arkansas plant board is considered an inquiry. An inquiry. Whether yeah. whether it's a question about how to use the product, question about pro, you know product efficacy, or a concern about I'm sit, I'm seeing drift issues in my soybeans, uh, an inquiry is an inquiry. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's it's safe to say as we've mentioned before, you know, with the problems that they had in the mid south last year with people using non labeled products on. Uh, on the on the dicamba tolerant crop simply because we do not have the labels at that time for the newer dicamba technologies uh, I think there's a special sensitivity uh, in those markets and rightfully so so uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out uh, through the rest of the season we're obviously moving moving toward the end of weed control time so uh, you know, I don't think we're going to, I don't know that we will see any more activity on a state level in terms of bans or new rules and regulations at this point, but it's safe to say that there, everybody's going to be looking at this, the states, the manufacturers, uh, growers, extension specialists, uh, everybody's going to be looking at it in terms of what do we need to do different moving into next crop year. Because remember, 
these products are only on a two-year label, and uh, EPA's watching to see uh, to see how things perform and uh, and to see how growers react to it. So uh, if if these tools want to stay in the market, then there's going to have to be some some adjustments or at least some you know some some tweaks in here to uh, to assure that that we're not going to have the problems that we have this year. Now, again, there's been a lot, you know, a lot of discussion, a lot of activity, a lot of fingers pointed, uh, you know, as to what the what the problems might be. And I think the best wrap up to all this came uh, from Larry Steckel, the Tennessee Extension Weed Specialist. He posted an article uh, yesterday, I believe, on uh, on their on the UT Crops website, and we have moved it. Uh, we have posted it also on CottonGrower.com. Uh, with a link to it off the Cotton Grower Facebook page. Basically, it's it's a collection of Larry's thoughts and opinions on the subject uh, after he's visited hundreds of damaged fields over the past month. In his opinion, there is no one single reason or cause for the problem. So, uh, and it's a very thoughtful, uh, well-done piece uh, from Larry, again, you can find it on uh, cottongrower.com. I urge you to go find it and read it under the headline, No One Reason for Frustrating Dicamba Issue. And uh, and we kind of keeping our, our fingers crossed at this point that that may be the last word on it for a while. Yeah. Well, and, we're, <laughs> and we're keeping guys like Larry uh, in our thoughts this summer. I know it's been a, it has been a uh, busy one for them uh, with this issue. And, and he does. He in particular, I feel like, has really... Uh, been at the forefront of trying to get to the bottom of this right. and doing uh, a lot and a lot, a lot of work. So, you know, good on Larry. Yep. Kudos to for... kudos to all the guys in the mid south who have been working on this. Yeah, no it's, doubt. It has not been uh, not been a simple summer for them at all. Uh, shifting gears, as Beck mentioned earlier, uh, the National Cotton Council and their uh, their pie tours or their producer information exchange, if you want to put the correct name to it. Uh, tours have started for the 2017 season. Uh, this is the 29th year for this program. Uh, it is sponsored by Bayer through a grant to the Cotton Foundation. And uh, more than 1,100 producers over those 29 years have had the opportunity to go visit uh, product cotton areas outside their, ge- their, their home geographies to see how the production practices may vary, look for uh, for ideas and thoughts that uh, that they may be able to bring back, and basically just to sit down and share information with with growers on, on you know in the other parts of, of the cotton belt. Um, right now, uh, as we speak, there are 12 cotton producers from the mid south uh, touring the San Joaquin Valley in California. Uh, they've been out there uh, since Monday of this week. We'll be heading home uh, Friday the 21st. There are two more tours scheduled for this summer. Uh, a group of producers out of the southwest are going to be visiting Georgia uh, July 31st through August 4th. And producers from the southeast and the far west are going to visit two cotton production regions in Texas the week of August 14th. So uh, we will keep uh, keep tabs on that and see... Uh, uh, see what s- sort of activity or or actions or, or if anything comes comes out of these tours. But uh, it's also a it's it's always a, a good t- uh, a good program, and the growers who are involved in this uh, really enjoy it and uh, and seem to get a lot out of it. I do. You know, I've done it. 
I've done yeah. a couple of those before, uh, and it is a super neat program. I know I went with, I think I was with a group of Texas guys touring the southeast. Gosh, this was probably like 2009 or so. And uh, part of that tour was we went up to Cary and saw uh, Cotton Incorporated, which right. I've, I have said multiple times before, it's like uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory just with cotton. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the neat sort of experimental stuff they've got going on there uh, with respect to cotton. Uh, anyhow, super cool trip. I, I went on one down uh, into the Mississippi Delta where friends of mine were actually the hosts, and I think they were hosting a group of Southeast uh, producers at that time. It wasn't as informative as the trip to, <laughs> to Cary. <laughs> Let me say, I think the highlight of that day was we wound up uh, porch sitting and having a having a cold beer uh, at the hunting camp. But fun none the same. The common thread was that the growers who participated uh, enjoyed uh, in, enjoyed every minute of it on both of those two instances when I was on the trip. And I'm sure that the Mid-South trip uh, was highly informative too, it, uh, it, which is the purpose of those pie tours. I just happened to be there on a relaxed day. When you, when you look at the agendas that they put together for these tours, it's almost exhausting. Yeah, you know, yeah, looking at it on much. paper because there's a lot of movement and a lot of a lot of shifting from here to there, and and uh, you know, it's it's a full week. Actually, it's probably they try to cram a week and a half's worth of activity into into basically four days. Yeah, yeah, and it's a hit. I, I never mm-hmm. talked to anybody who who did one of those who regretted it. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone I've spoken with loves those. Right. Things. So if you've never been on one and are interested in it, talk to uh, to your local uh, area area member services rep with the National Cotton Council and uh, and express your interest in it and hopefully uh, maybe you'll find yourself on one of these tours uh, next year. Yeah, yeah, do it. It gets the Beck Barnes um, uh, guarantee. The thumbs up seal of approval. Yeah, the seal of approval. There you go. There so, we go. So there good we. deal, Jim. I feel like that is the uh, that is it for our news items today. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break and on the flip side of that will be your interview that you conducted with Reese Langley down at the Southern Cotton Jenners Association meeting. And earlier I kind of teased that as something where you guys were discussing uh, the new administration some. I assume mm-hmm. that there were certainly other topics of interest in that. There were, yeah, there were a lot of topics, and I think one of the things you'll uh, our listeners will find in, in the meeting with Reese or the discussion with Reese that's coming up is he really went through, you know, let's face it, we've spent a lot of time in, in, in the last few last few weeks, obviously talking about dicamba, we've talked about other issues in the cotton, and the, and the one thing that has really kind of fallen off the chart or has been working under the radar is the work that's been going on in Washington trying to get ready for the next farm bill. And what Reese did in in this meeting, he reviewed sort of the the list of objectives that cotton has, cotton industry has for the new farm bill. Uh, and made no bones about it, it is not going to be an easy task. Uh, we want to get cotton back as a covered commodity, uh, it, especially if it's if if we can use cotton seed as that vehicle to uh, to make that happen. Uh, increasing market access funding for cotton exports, maintaining trade opportunities. I mean, there's a whole list of things that that uh, they would like to see happen, but realizing that there's going to be a more restrictive budget for that farm bill. Um, one thing that uh, that w- I, we talked briefly about is uh, Beck mentioned was the activity here this week uh, about trying to secure another round of the uh, cotton gin and cost share program, and 
you mentioned the uh, the activity of the the letter from from uh, House Ag Committee Chair Mike Conaway to the President yesterday. Uh, it turns out that's one of four letters that went to the President yesterday. There was one from the Senate. Uh, there was one from the House. Uh, in all, we've got 26 senators and 109 representatives that signed those letters supporting uh, the uh, reinstating the cotton gin and cost share program. Basically, for the tw- again for the 26 based on the 26 crop year, much like last year's was based on the 2015, but also putting it in place on an ongoing basis as part of a continuing program to help provide support. I know kind of way was seen as kind of spearheading that effort, right. but no doubt the council had a hand in rounding all those names up to put their names on that. Well, list. and let's, let's just put it in perspective. You had, you had the two letters, a letter from the Senate, you had a letter from the House. The National Cotton Council and 82 other cotton interest organizations also sent a letter mm-hmm. supporting, urging uh, administrative support for the program. Mm-hmm. A fourth letter was sent and signed by 1,605 ag lenders, agribusinesses, and other rural businesses in support of this. So all told, that's 1,823 voices that went to the, uh, you know, that were delivered, obviously in paper form, to, uh, to the Trump administration, urging support for this program and some financial assistance for cotton at a time when the industry greatly, greatly needs it. Uh, this Reese mentioned briefly in his presentation that this was this was going to be ongoing. Uh, but again, you have to understand the magnitude of putting an effort like this together and trying to get all of these different factions in place and coordinated uh, and in support. So it's you know it's a it's a gargantuan task almost, particularly in, in dealing with some of the, uh, the obstacles you'll find in Washington these days. I applaud the council. I applaud the industry. I applaud everyone who, is, who has moved forward and stepped up to support this. Now we just have to wait and see uh, how far that level of support will go. Uh, obviously, it's got to go through the administration. It's got to go through USDA. And, and keep your fingers crossed that we'll get a program uh, back in place here before the end of the summer. Uh, that will provide a little bit more economic relief to uh, to growers. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I just look at it as, you know, uh, evidence of, of the work that the council is doing there right. uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, out there going to bat for mm-hmm. our listeners, for uh, American cotton producers. Yeah. So while listen to me talk about it, we can uh, listen to Reese Langley with the council uh, in Washington, D.C., and hear his thoughts on these topics. We will have that interview for you on the flip side of this music break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Cotton Companion. Uh, This is Jim Stedman. I'm at the... uh, Southern Cotton Jenners Association summer meeting in Lafayette, Louisiana, and uh, visiting with Reese Langley. Reese is Vice President of uh, Public Affairs for uh, the National Cotton Council uh, out of Washington. Reese, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity to be back. Uh, one of the things, I, I think it's, we've been so, our news cycle's been so dominated out of Washington by, by things that are so n- non-ag. 
uh, you know, if, if you if you took a look at it, you know, you'd think we're dominated by health care, we're dominated by health, you know, tax reform, uh, fake news, uh, Russia, are they or aren't they? Uh, you know, but we know there's still a lot of activity going on, sort of under the radar regarding agriculture in in certain situation specifically related to cotton. Uh, if you could just kind of give us an update, let's, let's just take a look at a couple different areas and, and kind of fill us in and, and our listeners in on, on what may be going on that we're not completely aware of at this point. Let's look at cottonseed policy to start with. I know there's a lot of questions about where that stands after, uh, after the vote earlier this year. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you take it, take it. Okay. Well, thank you, Jim. So certainly the Cotton Industry, National Cotton Council, and other organizations had spent, as you know, about a year and a half trying to work with Congress and the previous administration to get a cottonseed policy in place to serve as an interim support or kind of a bridge to get us from where we are now until the new farm bill is in place to provide that short-term economic relief that the industry needs. And we really felt like we were on track working with Congress earlier this year to get that cottonseed policy included in the omnibus appropriations bill that was being finalized in April, late April, early May. Unfortunately, uh, even though the cottonseed proposal was budget neutral and it had consensus across the industry and, and pretty broad bipartisan support in Congress, it did ultimately get uh, we were ultimately not able to get that included in the final agreement and for a couple of reasons um, kind of unrelated to cotton but you know dealt with whether or not there was also going to be assistance included for the dairy industry which also is hurting economically and needed some support and just other uh, political is issues that came into play there so we feel like that was a missed opportunity, but nonetheless, we're trying to, or we are regrouping now and figuring out what would be the next best option, at least at this point, to get still some economic relief to the industry before the next farm bill. And so we believe that is trying to get USDA and the new administration to operate the cotton ginning cost share program, which uh, Secretary Vilsack had put in place last year and made that available for the 2015 cotton crop. So we would like to work with Secretary Purdue at USDA and the new administration to get them to restart that cost share program, make it available for this year uh, and apply to the 2016 crop, and ideally on an ongoing annual basis until we have a new farm bill in place. So that's what the industry and, and many in Congress are currently focused mm -hmm. on now. Okay. I know last year when, uh, when you put that program in place, you had a lot of broad bipartisan support uh, for that, uh, is that lining up again as, as you move into this, these discussions with USDA? It definitely is. Uh, we have had tremendous support from Congress, both the House and Senate, uh, bipartisan basis, and that is shaping up again this year. We have been working now for almost a month on a Senate letter that will be addressed to the administration as well as a House letter supporting the GEN cost share program and uh, so far we have uh, almost 80 members on the House letter and over 20 on the Senate letter. We hope to get those concluded in the next week or so and get those delivered as well as cotton industry and broader agribusiness um, 
ag lending letter that really represents a huge cross-section of uh, rural businesses and uh, the rural communities across the Cotton Belt that are also asking for and helping to demonstrate the need for this assistance. Okay, great. Um, let's, let's shift our focus to Farm Bill just a little bit. Uh, I know several meetings earlier this year, uh, Chairman Conway, uh, has expressed a, a definite interest to get cotton back in as a uh, as a covered commodity mm -hmm. under the uh, the next farm bill and his goal has always been I'm going to have this thing done I'm going to have this thing written I think it, the timeline he said at that point was September of, of 18 have it done before the 14 farm bill expires where do we stand with the farm bill negotiate or program right now and, and uh, the decisions and the policies behind it so uh, definitely, I, uh, Chairman Conaway and Chairman Roberts in the Senate have both indicated multiple times their strong goal and objective is to get the new bill done, as you said, on time. And so a lot of things, though, have to happen uh, for that to, uh, to fall into place, and that's, it really all starts with the budget and what is going to be the budget available to the Ag Committees to write the next Farm Bill. And so we won't know the complete answer to that until we see what Congress does this year with respect to the fiscal year 2018 budget that is being worked on now. But uh, certainly both committees, House and Senate, are doing all of their homework now to be in a position to start writing the bill as soon as possible. And so they have both held hearings both in Washington as well as across the country and those are continuing for the House Committee uh, through August anyway listening sessions around the country and DC hearings are continuing in both the House and Senate and so um, you know I think right now they are that work will continue while they're urging the ag community the commodity groups to start getting our priorities in line and and uh, in a position so that we can start providing those to the committees uh, relatively soon if there becomes a time frame or a window that opens for them to start moving the bill mm -hmm. uh, we expect at this point it will probably uh, the first action will be in the house starting with the house ag committee if they think they can get floor time uh, sometime late this year. Okay. At, at this point, what do you see cotton's priorities being as uh, th things we need to do for the cotton industry into this next farm bill? Well, generally, the, the, the top priority is to make sure we get cotton back into the commodity title, the Title I policy, which right now consists of the ARC PLC framework. Mm -hmm. So if that's going to be the framework moving forward in the next Farm Bill, then making sure cotton is a part of that. And then beyond that, uh, making sure that we continue to maintain an effective marketing loan program that doesn't impede the flow of cotton to the marketplace, making sure that we protect crop insurance so that it continues to be the important risk management tool that it is. Uh, anything that can be done to strengthen programs that help promote trade and exports. And then also uh, addressing some of the uh, issues around payment limitations and payment eligibility that came about in the 2014 Farm Bill that need to hopefully be corrected in the new Farm Bill. So generally speaking, I think those are the, the top priorities for the cotton industry at this point. Now there are, is a, a work going on uh, within the Cotton Council to uh, 
develop more specific detailed recommendations about what a Title I cotton policy looks sure. like. And so that work is underway uh, throughout this summer. It's always good to go in prepared, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about the administration and trade policies at this point? How, how can, uh, what's, what's the potential impact or, or benefit in some cases for cotton in, in some of the trade activities the administration has in mind? Well, certainly, as everyone knows, trade and, and trade agreements are getting a lot of attention from the new administration. Uh, Secretary Perdue has made it clear that trade and growing and maintaining exports is a priority for him, so that's very encouraging. And we see Congress taking a very active role as well in making sure their views are heard within the administration about the importance of trade. For cotton specifically, if we take NAFTA first and the effort to renegotiate the NAFTA agreement, our position is, and we've conveyed this to the administration and Congress, both formally and informally, is to make sure that first we do no harm to the market mm -hmm. that exists primarily in Mexico for U.S. cotton, right. as well as U.S. cotton products. And with NAFTA, what we've seen develop since it went into force is a very integrated textile supply chain throughout the Western Hemisphere. And so we don't want to see anything done in the renegotiation that would upset that. And so one, doing no harm, maintaining the access we have, but then secondly, we do believe that there are some exceptions with NAFTA that could be addressed that might provide even greater benefits from the agreement, particularly for our U.S. textile industry. Mm -hmm. In any of the trade agreements, we always work to make sure there's a strong yarn forward rule of origin, which means the benefits of the trade agreement only accrue to those countries that are part of the agreement. And so tightening up that as it relates to NAFTA will be an important uh, objective in the renegotiation. And then if we shift our focus from NAFTA to China, for example, and the short-term focus that this administration has placed on trying to advance or get some some uh, additional trade wins when it comes to U.S.-China trade. I think it's been very positive that we've seen in this, quote, 100-day period that was laid out after President Trump and the Chinese president met this spring. We have seen the results of that being, one, getting U.S. beef back into the Chinese market after a number of years. And so we think that framework and dialogue that has begun maybe holds an opportunity for us to work now in, in a little bit longer time frame beyond just the 100-day period to try to see what opportunities exist to get additional U.S. cotton into China because we know that the textile industry in China is seeking more U.S. cotton, but there are some things that need to be done within trade policy to help facilitate that. So it, trying to explore that. At this point, I think China has like an import quota, correct, That's correct. on, on that, U.S. cotton? As part of their uh, agreement to enter the World Trade Organization, they did agree to a certain amount of import quota. It's about 4.1 million bales a year that they have to import. Anything above that level, can have a relatively high duty applied, which mm -hmm. really prevents, in many cases, any additional imports. Sure. So that would be one thing to look at. You mentioned uh, WTO just just a second ago, and I know everything that the cotton industry went through with with that organization um, 
earlier this decade, uh, which kind of brought us to the 2014 Farm Bill and some of the, the issues that we've, we've had with that. Where do we stand with WTO right now? So have has the, the global situation changed enough that, that maybe what we want to do with cotton policy won't be as big an issue with them? I mean, when, when do they meet again? What's, what's our next expectations on this? Right. So the next major WTO meeting will be their ministerial, which will occur in December of this year. That meeting occurs every two years. And historically, that has been the forum where there has been pressure from some countries on the U.S. to agree to further concessions in our U.S. cotton policy. But fortunately, in the 2015 ministerial meeting, our U.S. trade negotiators held firm and did not agree to any further changes to cotton policy. And so that will be our request and objective for our trade negotiating team now at this administration as they go into that session this December to make sure they defend U.S. cotton policy and not agree to any further concessions. And then um, that the WTO and WTO compliance will definitely be a factor that will be discussed, I'm sure, significantly as the new farm bill is being put together. And um, I don't think we can escape the fact that cotton will probably uh, still be a, a part of that conversation just because of the Brazil case. Even though that case is settled, it's fully behind us now. There was the agreement that was reached between the U.S. and Brazilian governments to settle that case um, really applied for the life of the 2018 Farm Bill. So things that we're looking at for the new Farm Bill post-2018 are not bound by or, or really um, dictated by that agreement. So we feel like that's obviously a good thing because ultimately at the end of the day for our industry, the National Cotton Council, and our allies in Congress, it's got to be about what is going to provide the most effective safety net for U.S. cotton producers so that they uh, can compete in this global marketplace with other countries that are heavily subsidizing their industry. And so making sure that we have the appropriate safety net has to be our overarching goal. Sure. Great. Well, it sounds like you've got enough on your plate that, you know, we know you're staying busy and, and the rest of the industry knows you're staying busy. And if they didn't, they certainly do by now. Uh, I know it's going to be interesting times as we move ahead uh, from now through the Farm Bill debate and, and everything else. And uh, uh, you guys are doing a great job. We appreciate everything you're doing. Well, thank you, Jim. Thank you for this opportunity. Great to be with you. Right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Cotton Companion. We'll be right back after this short break. So, okay, that is going to just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. We want to thank Reese Langley for uh, the interview that he did with Jim here. Uh, we are always appreciative when the council's uh, voices sit down and talk to us about what all they've got going on. So, as you may have noticed, if you are listening to this podcast, you will know that uh, the pod is tied to a new subscription drive that we are doing here at Cotton Grower Magazine. Um that thing tied to our podcast platform. We're just asking you to sign up, give us your uh, 
I think we're asking for a subscription to our e-newsletter or your email address um, in order to be able to listen to the podcast. As you guys know, we don't charge our audience for anything, our magazine, our podcast, anything on our website, e-newsletter. We bring that all to you as a service for free. Uh, The only thing that we ask is that you keep us posted with your subscription uh, material. That is sort of the lifeblood of our business model is our subscriber list. So we ask that if you haven't done so in a while, please go ahead and subscribe to our magazine or to our e-newsletter. You can do both of those things uh, from uh, the homepage of our website, cottongrower.com. Simply scroll to the bottom of the page, find the subscribe link, do us a solid, and give us your subscription. Uh, It is, as I say, the lifeblood of our business model. So if you enjoy what we produce, the content that we produce here at Cotton Grower Magazine, you would be doing us a great favor. With that out of the way, let me say we, we thank you sincerely for joining us. If you like what you're hearing here at the Cotton Companion Podcast, by all means, tell your farmer buddies about us. We think that they will like it too. You could tell them that they can reach our podcast in three easy ways. The first, I mentioned earlier, go to the homepage of cottongrower.com. Go to the search bar. You could type in Cotton Companion in the search bar there at the top of the page, and it will take you to a landing spot that's got each of our 29 now archived episodes there on the page. The second way to reach the podcast, you could subscribe to our channel on iTunes. If you are familiar with iTunes, if you got a smartphone, please just go ahead and subscribe. You can search uh, for the Cotton Companion Podcast in the iTunes search bar. Hit that subscribe button. And man, if you're feeling crazy, you can even leave us a rating, leave a comment, let us know what you think about our podcast uh, on that channel. The third, and in my opinion, the best way to make sure that you receive each installment of the Cotton Companion podcast is to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the Cotton Grower e-newsletter. Jim here works hard to pack that thing with all of the news of the day, all the news that's fit to print from the cotton market. Uh, And those things, those e-newsletters, hit your email inbox each Tuesday morning like clockwork. Occasionally during the production harvest season, they will hit your uh, inbox on Thursdays as well. You can do. Uh, you can make sure you are receiving the e-newsletter by going to cottongrower.com, scrolling to the bottom of the page, and finding the link to subscribe to our e-newsletter. There, it's just a word that says subscribe. You can click on it, and uh, you can follow the intuitive steps from there. Also, please make sure you're following us on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find us by simply searching for Cotton Grower Magazine in the search bar there. We do a lot of fun stuff on social media, and uh, we hope that you'll join us. We hope that you are still enjoying your latest issue of Cotton Grower Magazine, which is the May-June issue, which hit your mailbox a little over a month ago now. The next one that you'll see from us is the August-September issue. It will hit your mailbox uh, in the 1st of September. It'll be a good one with a lot of interesting stuff packed in it, so keep your eyes peeled for that. This podcast is produced by Mr. Marcus Antonelli. He works at the Mothership Meister Media Worldwide in beautiful Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I will be back with you in two short weeks for the next episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. For now, on behalf of my own Cotton Companion, Mr. Jim Stebman, we wish you and your farm all the best.